0: Hello welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the day. Thank you for these people. Thank you, God, for the generosity of Calvary Chapel Columbus. I pray that you would use our offerings in our time and in our talent and our treasure for your glory, for the furtherment of your kingdom, God, for the betterment of our community. Lord, uh, uh, we just pray that you would continue to guide and direct this church. We declare that we love you and we want to serve you uh, with all all that we have, God. And now as we open your word, we know that this is how you speak to us, and so we pray that you would. We pray that you would mold and shape our hearts, God, that we would set our distractions aside and just and listen to what you would have to say. Father, I do pray that you would help me to rightly divide your word, not leading anyone astray. And we thank you for the whole counsel of the Bible, and we give you glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So John 15 is kind of in the middle of this discourse is known as the upper room discourse. And we see that as Christ now is headed toward the Garden of Gethsemane, headed toward being betrayed, headed toward the cross, merely hours from his death, he's still pouring into these 11 men their lives and, and he's investing in them and he's explaining to them. He realizes that the beginning of the church, while empowered by the Holy Spirit, is going to be on their shoulders. And so he's, he's, he's loving them to the end. That's what he said back in 14. And so he's, he's now walking through the Valley Kidron on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, continuing this conversation with his disciples. We um, our, our fresh start is in verse 14, but I wanted to review just a couple verses from last week um, because Jesus made a call to us, and he said, this is the way I want you to be, and, and the call was to love. And what's the idea of loving? Well, it's the, de- the way we define love as being others-centered. It's Jesus commands us to love in the way that he loves. In fact, look at verse 12. He said, this is my commandment, that you love One another as I have loved you. And so we have a model. We have somebody that we are to follow, an example that has been given, and that is Christ's example. How has he loved us? Verse 13 Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And that's exactly what Christ has done on our behalf. He has laid down his life, he has given his all that you and I might have life. He has loved us in that way. And now he says to you and I, do the same thing. Love in that way. Love your your brother, your sister in Christ. Love the world in that way, the people of the world. So picking it up in verse 14, new material for us this week. He says to them and to us, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Is it static? A little bit? Yeah. We had that first service as well, and hopefully it'll go away. We'll see. <sighs> um Let me read it again. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You are my friends, he says. He calls us friends. That's amazing. That's wonderful. That's mind-blowing that God... The, the one who spoke things into existence, the, Jesus, the one who created all things, the ruler of all things, looks at you and I and says, you're my friend. You're my friend. I have nothing in me. I have no right. I have nothing to bring to the table that God would say, I want to call you my friend because of these things. And neither do you. None of us do. We don't, we don't come to the table with anything that God's like, oh, I like that, so I want to be your friend. He says, no, I call you friends. He chooses to make us his friend. That is just awesome. On top of that, remember the infomercials? Remember Ron Popeil and the pocket fisherman? <laughs> Wait, there's more for e3 easy payments of 19.99 you get two pocket fishermen and a knife that will cut through a tin can if you want to wait there's more on top of him calling us his friends he lays down his life for us Greater love is no one than this, and the one that would lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Christ has done on our behalf. Jesus pays the ultimate price that we might have his friendship. How wonderful. And if you think about it for just a moment, that's the only way that we could be friends of a holy God, is if a price had been paid on our behalf because you and I, what we do bring to the table is our wretchedness. What we do bring to the table is our sin, that that even our righteous deeds outside of Christ, the word would say, are just filthy rags. That's what we bring to the table. And Christ, who became the way on our behalf, who laid down his life that you and I might have life, what that does is it allows us into the presence of a holy God. If you... Put the imperfect in the presence of the perfect. It makes the perfect imperfect. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so God cannot have unholiness. God cannot have imperfection in his presence. Were he to do that, it would become imperfect. And so what Christ has done is he says, I want to be your friend. I will make the way so that you can be so that we stand before a pure and perfect God, justified, holy and righteous. And that is through the sacrifice that Christ has made, allows us to be his friend. So what is he doing? He says, no longer do I call you servants, in verse 15, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. He's promoting them. Do you see that? He's lifting them from the position that they had, and rightfully so, of servant, to that of a friend. How were they servants? Well, the the relationship that they were in was like that of a master and a slave. Jesus was a rabbi. These men were his disciples. And the relationship that they would have would be like that. Where Jesus would be the master, the disciples were more like servants. And so they were comfortable with that relationship. That's the way all the rabbis work. Their disciples were treated, were treated as servants, and they served their master. And so now Jesus says, yes, you're my disciples, but I'm promoting you from that of just a servant to that of a friend. What's the difference well, Jesus tells us, the difference is in what you know. It says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. Why? Because now you know. I, all, the, all the things that the Father has said, I made known to you. And so the difference is now in, is, is what we know. A friend knows the heart, a servant does not A friend knows the heart, a servant does not. Think about this, if you go back to the book of Genesis, we look at this man Abraham, the beginning of this relationship with the nation of Israel, God invests into Abraham. James chapter 2 calls Abraham a friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God. In fact, Abraham's the only man mentioned by name as a friend of God in the whole word of God. And so James calls him a friend of God. You go back to Genesis chapter 18, and these three dudes are rolling into Sodom and Gomorrah, kind of a rough town, a rough neighborhood, some bad things happening. They've got a plan. These three guys are going to, you know, pour out fire and brimstone, a judgment upon the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham has his nephew, Lot, there. And these men, kind of a representation of the Trinity, in fact, it is God that, that, that is coming, they say, should we tell Abraham what we are about to do? Should we tell him what we're about to do? And they decide, yeah, we're going to tell him. And so they let Abraham know that, hey, judgment is coming to Sodom and Gomorrah. You have your nephew Lot there. You need to get him out. And so a friend knows the heart of his, other, of his friend. God tells Abraham, and Jesus has told us. Jesus tells us what the Father is about. What is that? What is the Father about? Well, through Christ coming to this earth, Jesus is about the Father's business. The Father's business is to seek and to save the lost. That's what he's doing. That's the plan. That's the redemptive plan of Christ and why Christ has come to this earth. And so he lets them know, hey, that's what I'm about. That's why I'm here. Now you know, and you're going to carry that commandment, the commission to do the same thing, to seek and to save the lost. God tells Abraham, Jesus has told us. Now it's interesting to note Jesus elevates all these guys, these 11 guys, to the position of friend. Good thing. And to, to us as well. We are a friend of God. But then continue to read on and read the writings of some of these men and how they address themselves. Look at Paul. Look at Peter. Look at James, the brother of Jesus. Not just merely a friend of Jesus's, but his half brother. They all start their writings with, hey, I'm Paul, Paul, I'm a servant of God. So though Jesus elevated their position to friend, they still, and rightfully so, consider themselves this word bondservant. What is a bondservant? It's a servant by choice. They made the decision, and you and I should take from their example to make the same decision, that though Jesus calls us friend, elevates us to that position, we choose to continue to serve him. That's what the, cho- the choice that Paul made. That's the choice that Peter made. That's the choice that James, his brother, made. Yeah, Jesus elevated me to a friend, but I will continue to be a servant of his as well. I will continue to serve him. Good humility there. All right, verse 16. Look at, look at this an important verse. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in my Father's name, He may give you. You and I and all who are saved are chosen by God. We did not choose Him. He chose us. That's what it says, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, some of you, and many, perhaps many of you that have walked with Christ for a while, you know that this can be an area of contention in Christendom. Where are we getting into? We're getting into the doctrine of election. That God chose us. And generally, there are two camps when it comes to the doctrine of election. There are those that would align themselves with the sovereignty of God and say, yes, God has elected us. And then there are those that would align themselves with the responsibility of man and say, no, we have a choice. And perhaps you've heard these terms before. One camp, those that would lean toward the sovereignty of God are known as those that followed the teachings of John Calvin, Calvinists. Mm-hmm. And there are those that that lean more toward the responsibility of man, and those are known as Arminius. The fo- they follow the teaching of Arminian, okay? And so th- throughout Christendom, there have th- there's been this divide. Battle is a good word. Some for the camp of the sovereignty of God and, and divine election, and some for the human responsibility, where do we fall? How do we teach? What do we teach? Well, we teach the Word of God. We're not Calvinists. We're not Arminius. We we we're Calvinists. <laughs> Why? Well, because as we teach through the Word, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, there are verses like this that lean toward and teach us the doctrine of election that, hey, we're chosen by God go through Romans. You've been predestined. You've been ordained. You've been you've been chosen. You've been elected. The, uh, Peter mentions the elect. And so there are these scriptures out there that speak of the election of God. And there are these scriptures as well that speak of our responsibility to choose. Joshua 24, choose this day whom you will serve. Um, John 3, 16, whosoever should believe. Mm-hmm. And so I can't reconcile these two things. I, I, don't, uh, I don't fall into one camp and say, yeah, it's all about the sovereignty of God, or I don't fall into the other camp and say, it's all about the free will of man, or how could, it, how could God be completely sovereign, and how could man still have a choice? You want to hear the answer? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly right, when we get there. I, I don't know. The, can I reconcile those two things in my mind? No but i got a pea brain. And it, it's, it's not real big. And you know what? That gives me great comfort, actually. That I can't fully explain all that my God is about, that's a good thing. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And so I can't, while I can't necessarily reconcile these two things, I do trust That both are correct. I like what Chuck Smith says when it comes to this. He says, um, when it comes to Calvin versus Arminian, each camp is correct in what they assert. They're in error in what they deny. The Calvinists would deny that humans have the responsibility and the choice. The Arminians would deny the sovereignty of God. And so they're both correct in what they assert. They are incorrect in what they deny. And like I said, we can't we can't honestly reconcile these two trains of thoughts in our finite mind, but the Bible speaks clearly on both. And so as we go chapter by chapter, as we go verse by verse, when the Bible teach on, teach, speaks on election, that's what we teach about. Jesus, in this verse, he says, hey, I chose you. I picked you. This is, I, I have selected you. And, and that's important. And we should feel great joy in that, that we have been chosen. So then the question would say, well, what if I'm not chosen? Well, what if I'm not chosen? Well, then accept him, and you'll be chosen. (laughs) Accept him, and you'll be chosen. Well, what if I don't want to accept him? Well, then what do you care if you were chosen or not? That's what it boils down to. And another point in that verse that many would skip over, or not necessarily, just they would place so much emphasis on the first thing he says. I don't want us to miss the second thing he says. I chose you and appointed you. Mm-hmm. I've appointed you. If you go back to the King James, it says there, I've ordained you. Mm-hmm. Now, we do in our church, and, and many churches through across the land, have what's known as ordination. It's this mm-hmm formal ceremony. It's what we did in October when I became the senior pastor of this church. Paul, our elder, came up and said, we, we have decided we're going to make Chris the pastor of this church. We lay hands on him, we pray for him, and he is now the senior pastor. That's an ordination. But while there is that formality, Christ doesn't do that. He just says, hey, you're all appointed. You're all ordained. I have all, I've commissioned you all as my disciples to do something. What? You and I should go and bear fruit. Remember back to the beginning of the chapter? I know it was like two weeks ago and you know a lot of stuff has happened since then. But the beginning of the chapter was talking about abiding in him. That he is the vine. That we are the branches. And as we abide in him, he prunes away those things that we don't need. That we might bear fruit for the kingdom. For the benefit of the vine dresser. For the benefit of the Father God. And so he says, you know, the reason I've chosen you and appointed you, that I've ordained you, is that we would go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. We have been ordained. You don't have to come up here and we don't have to lay hands on you and we don't have to send you out. Jesus, in this moment, ordains you in this place to go and bear fruit for his kingdom and his glory. He has ordained us all, called us all to this, bringing glory to the king. Verse 17, he says, These things I command you, that you love one another. Now, if you've been with us for a couple weeks, you've heard this a few times. This is not the first time that Jesus has said this. Does Jesus just like to hear himself speak? (laughs) Is it all about, is John just trying to fill the page? He's like, you remember that in second grade or third grade when you were given a one-page report to write, and so you would, you know, repeat yourself seven times, just say it in a slightly different way, just so you could fill the page, right? I'll give you an example. In ninth grade, it was ninth grade science, I had to do a report on a disease. They said, you know, do a five-page written report on, on some sort of disease. I was like, okay. So I picked Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, it's a disease, a pretty nasty disease, a disease of the spine. It's known as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. The real name for it is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And I wrote it out every single time. LAUGHTER why? It took a whole line to write that out. <laughs> a myotrophic lateral, scler- I mean, my hand hurt at the end of it, but yeah, I'll never forget that, you know, what it is, and so I, 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 every time I came across it, I wrote it out <laughs> just to fill the page. Is John doing that here? Is Jesus just hearing, you know, speaking to hear himself speak? No. He knows my mind. He knows your mind. He knows how fickle we are, how quickly we're, our attention is drawn somewhere else by something shiny, and so he's going to repeat, hey, What are you to be about? This is what I want you to do. Hey, my commandment, the thing that I command you, love one another. The economy of God is not based on how much we know, how much we have, how much we do. It's on how much we love. How much we love. Our Savior commands that we Love, that we live others centered with one another. That's the greatest witness that you and I have to this dark and dying world. Do you recognize that? The best thing we can do to show the world that Jesus is love one another. He said that back in John 13, 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus singles out one thing as our witness to the world. And that is our love for one another. You want to be a light? You want to shine brightly? Love. Love. Care for. Invest in. Give everything. Serve. Love. The truth of the matter is, we're going to need that love. You and I are going to need that love. Why? Look at the next verse. If the world hates you... You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Wow. Strong words. When Christ chooses us, he calls us out of the world. He calls us out of the muck and the mire. Think about it in terms of the beginning of the chapter. He takes our dry, withered, broken branch and lifts us up, right? That's what the the, the term was back there in verse 2. He lifts us up. Romans 11 would tell us he grafts us in. He lifts us out of the muck and mire. He sets our face toward the sun, and we are no longer of this world. We have been chosen out of it. And so as we follow Christ, and just pause there for a second, because I throw that term out there all the time, and probably if you walked with Christ, you do too. But what does that mean, as we follow Christ? What does that mean? Well, it means that we live and we love the way that he lives and he loves. That's what it <coughs> means to follow him. Is that we, our lives, are, we're trying to show with our lives that we love our Savior and that our lives would line up and, and follow or mimic the way that Christ lived his life and the way that Christ loves, we love. And what he tells us is when we do that, we'll often receive the same treatment from the world that he did, mm-hmm. that we will be hated. Was Christ hated? Was Christ persecuted? Mm. Certainly so. We should expect it in our lives as well. And some of you might say, I don't see that. I don't have anybody that hates me. And my question would be, are, are you following Christ? Are you living the way He lived? Are you loving the way that He loved? Why? Why would the world hate us? Because darkness doesn't like light. That's what it boils down to. Why? Light causes pain of exposure. (laughs) Light causes pain of exposure, right? Lift up a rock and all the bugs that are comfortable down there where it's warm and where it's dark, what happens? Go find dark again, right? Here's a quote. See if you guys remember this. When I stepped out into the bright sunlight, from the darkness of the movie theater i had only two things on my mind paul newman and a ride home <laughs> remember anybody anybody no Somebody remembered First Service. I don't know why I remember that. That comes from middle school. You all read the book. It's the book, The Outsiders. Yeah, right on. Right on. It's the book, The Outsiders, and that's Ponyboy, and that's the way the book opens. When I stepped out of the bright light, of the, or bright, into the bright sunlight of the darkness of the movie theater, I had only two things on my mind, Paul Newman and a ride home. Anyway, I don't know why, but probably because I've stepped out into the bright light of, from a dark theater. What happens? It hurts. If you, you know, don't go back through the lobby and work your way adjusting to the light as you go. If you go out the doors that are right there by the screen, it's out into the parking lot. And if you're at the two two o'clock matinee, you walk out and you're like, ah, oh, right? If you had your eyes dilated, there is no worse pain. I'm quite convinced there is no worse pain than having your eyes dilated on a sunny day. I think optometrists dig that. They walk oh, we got to dilate you. (laughs) And they're smirking. (laughs) Darkness, or sorry, light causes pain of exposure. Darkness likes darkness. His light exposes all darkness. And darkness doesn't attack darkness, only light. Darkness doesn't attack darkness, only light. And that's why you don't see these false religions attacking one another. They all attacked, attacked Christendom. Can I step on some toes? Are you comfortable with that for just. And I don't know if I'll step on anybody here, but. Darkness doesn't attack darkness. And that's why Oprah can quote Joel Osteen and Deepak Chopra, and the Qur'an, and it's all good. Darkness doesn't attack darkness. And the religion that she pushes is a false religion of mysticism. Darkness doesn't attack darkness. As we follow Christ, as we walk in His ways... We expect that we would get the same treatment that our Savior got. And sometimes that means the world's going to hate us. Why? Because they don't understand. They don't understand the lie. And we mock and we destroy and we tear apart and we ridicule, uh, ridicule that which we don't understand. Verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And so he does encourage them here just a little bit. Hey, as we're following in his footsteps, our life is going to look similar to his. And a servant is not greater than his master is what he said. So if they had persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. But if they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. Be encouraged by that but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. You know what, Christian? Jesus is telling us pretty plainly, it ain't all roses, this walk with Christ. Now, I will say it is all joy, because we talked about that last week, that even the difficult times and even the persecution that might come and even if the world would hate us, those things are used for our good and for His glory. So it is all joy, but it ain't necessarily all roses. And anybody that would preach that is mistaken and, and deceiving. Life following Christ is hard at times. Mm-hmm. is challenging at times. Now he says my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And that is true, but that means sometimes we're going to be hated by the world. Now, I love Jesus and his mastery of of interacting with people. Think about what he did in, in this conversation. He elevated them. He gave them a promotion. You're no longer servants. Now I call you friends. And knowing the wicked heart of man, he says right after that, oh, by the way, you'll be hated. Why? Because... If I was Peter and I had John standing next to me, and we're <clears throat> following Jesus to the garden, he promotes us to friend. I would be like, "Hey, John, did you hear that? <laughs> we're, we're friends of his. Look how good I am. I'm a friend of Jesus." When I have, he elevated me, he elevated us, and so before they can even get proud, oh by the way, um, here's a little humility for you: the world's going to hate you. Like I said, because they don't understand. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. Hear that. He who hates me hates my father also. There are those in this world who would say, I love God. I love God. But I can't stand Christ. I can't stand what he was about. Guess what? He who hates me hates my father also. You cannot love the Father without loving the Son. Why? John 14, 6. He's the way. The way that you love the Father is through Jesus Christ the Son. No one can come to the Father but by me. The way that we do that is through the Son. And so we cannot love the Father without loving the Son. If I had had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. But this happened that the world might be, or the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without cause. Christ is sinless. Right. He's without sin. There's no reason to hate him. He's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing other than expose the darkness. And for that they hate him. But he is fulfilling every prophecy given including they hated me without a cause. And then finishing up the ver- the chapter. When the helper comes whom I shall send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father he will testify of me. Now remember the context of this whole conversation. As the conversation began he's like, "Hey guys, I'm leaving. I know you followed me for three years, but I'm leaving, I'm bolting, I'm out of this place, and, um, and now you're going to have to figure out what you're going to do. And their hearts sink, and they're let down, and, and, and so this conversation is try to set their mind right and set them at ease, and he reminds them, hey, I'm leaving that I might go prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may also be. Uh, things are going to be okay, it's going to work out just fine, and even while I'm gone, it's a good thing that I'm gone, because I'm going to send the Helper. The Holy Spirit, he's going to come and he's going to walk alongside the paraclete. That's what it means to walk alongside. He's going to dwell in your heart. Now Jesus tells us a way to understand the way the Holy Spirit is leading us in our lives. He says he's going to testify of me. So the litmus test for you and I in our lives, as we consider whether or not what we're hearing is from the Holy Spirit is, does what he's saying testify of Jesus? Because that's what the Holy Spirit's role is in my life and in your lives. It's to point us to Jesus. Is what I'm hearing, is the way I think I'm supposed to be going, is that pointing me toward Jesus or is it pulling me away from Jesus? If it's pulling us away, then it's not the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Don't listen to it. But it... He will point us to the Holy... uh, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit will point us to Jesus. And not just us, but through us, He will point others to Jesus as well. So you see that in verse 26. Just want to make sure. The Spirit who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. The role of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to point us to Jesus, okay? And then He says in 27, And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So not only will the Holy Spirit testify of Jesus, the Spirit within us will testify of him as well, and we will be his witnesses. We will bear witness on his behalf. How cool is that? That Christ calls us into the redemptive plan, the work of God. He doesn't just save us and set us on a shelf. He doesn't just save us and say, hey, wait till you die, and then life will get grand. He says, no, 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 no. Come into the work that I'm doing. What is the work that I'm doing? To seek and to save the lost. Be a part of that. Be part of the redemptive plan. Listen to the Holy Spirit. He's going to testify of me. When you see the Spirit testifying, then follow that and testify of me as well. Be my witness. Bear my witness. And so I have to ask, as we close out the chapter, are you doing that? Are you bearing witness of your friend? of your Savior? Does the world hate you? And not because you're an idiot? (laughs) Because if the world hates you because you're an idiot, you deserve it. Christ gave all that we might be his friend. What kind of friend am I to him? Have I committed to giving my all for him? That sounds kind of risky. It's not. It's not at all. In fact, it's the best place that we can be. That's where joy is, in giving our all for his kingdom, for his glory. There is no greater place to be than to be a friend of God. amen Amen. let's stand let's close in prayer I'm hungry I'm baking Jesus thank you forgive me for forgive me Lord thank you for exposing my deeds my wretchedness Thank you for the pain that comes from seeing myself in the light. But in that, your love is so evident because you've made the way that we might have the privilege of standing in the presence of a holy God. Jesus, thank you for elevating us to your friend. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would honor that friendship. That we would find value in it. That we would forsake the world and the ways of the world. You've called us out of the world. That we would look different from the world. That we would love one another as you have loved us. And through that witness, the world would come and be saved. Help us to be bold for you, God. I am so grateful for this church. I'm so grateful for the generosity of this church. I pray that you would continue to use us for your glory, God, until you come and get us, or we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 Podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.